A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower just that, local communities making their own decisions about how their electricity is sourced. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities significantly more renewable energy than traditional electricity service in the area. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy, though. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Welcome to Political Climate. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Canary Media. Canary Media is a nonprofit newsroom with a mission to chronicle the transition away from fossil fuels and towards the clean and equitable energy systems of the future. This is a story that spans across all sectors of the economy and our daily lives, and one that is already well underway. Renewable energy is fast growing. It's creating jobs and opportunities for advancing equity, resilience, and health benefits in communities around the world. Critically, it's also reducing the emissions driving the climate crises we currently face. So head over to canarymedia.com for all the original reporting that you need to know. You can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. We'll see you there, and thanks for listening. Everybody involved in this process has told me, this is how it goes. It's chaotic. It's ugly. Everything will be declared dead several times before we get to the end of this. And ultimately, in the end, Dems are going to hash out a number they can all live with and pass both the bills. So I still think... That's the most optimistic thing I think I've ever heard you say. (laughs) (laughs) The minute it came out of my mouth, I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I said? Hello and welcome to Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I am your host, Julia Piper, and as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton. On this episode, we're joined by clean energy and politics reporter David Roberts. He's the founder and writer of the newsletter Volts and host of the podcast by the same name. He's also editor-at-large at Canary Media. Before that, David covered climate and energy politics for five years at Vox and 10 years at Grist. David is also a prolific tweeter. Go and follow him at drvolts if you don't already. But of course you do. Everybody does. You know his work. You love it. David Roberts, thank you so much for joining us again on Political Climate. Hi, Julia. So we are so excited to walk through everything that is going on on Capitol Hill, the future of democracy, you know, just a few hot topics. But first, you know, I know you're joining us today from Chris Hayes' show on MSNBC, which is pretty much, you know, the same as the Political Climate podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Except we have a much larger audience. Yeah, I I told them, you guys, I got a hard cutoff here. I'm not missing the the podcast. So you guys got to move your stuff around. What did you guys cover? What's, <laughs> tell us what's happening in the mainstream media. <laughs> uh, it was about um, the Kemper coal plant, uh, which I'm sure you all are familiar with. And the, and the you know, the demolition video uh, went around the Internet. And so it was just reflecting on the uh, sort of dismal end of the clean coal uh, dream. Seven and a half billion dollars lit on fire for bupkis. 
For those who may not know or to jog your memories, the Kemper plant is a coal plant in Mississippi that's owned by Southern Company. And it was meant to be this first of its kind coal plant that would burn clean coal. It was going to have carbon capture technology on board, but effectively it turned into a $7.5 billion flop with the technology not panning out. And now allegations of deception and mismanagement and ultimately the coal portion of the plant has now been demolished and turned to rubble. And then we talked like relative to that, how much press the Solyndra nonsense got. Uh, and he was showing clips to this day, like literally today, Fox News hosts are still talking about Solyndra. They're still using Solyndra as a stand in for all of clean energy policy. It's like a cannon. It's like some sort of incantation. It will never die. It will never go away. Brandon, you weren't you around during the Solinda drama in case anyone didn't know what it is? Like, say we have younger listeners. No offense to your age, but, you know, tell them what that was. <laughs> Back in your oh, day, Gramps, yeah. what the, what were they? <laughs> well, we had a program, the loan guarantee program at the DOE, where we got tens of billions of dollars uh, in Recovery Act money. Our goal was to do deals that the private sector wouldn't do give lots of different technologies a chance to compete. And then the ones that uh, won out, the private sector would finance without the government, which is exactly what happened in solar. There had been no utility scale solar projects in this country, nothing over 100 megawatts. We did the first six. Now the private sector finances them without the US government. That's why we have all these solar plants all over the country. But one of those technologies that we invested in was at Solyndra. Uh, and it was different than polysilicon and uh, it didn't make it. And so one of the dozens and dozens and dozens of investments that we did failed. But, let's, but, the, but yeah. <laughs> let, let's point out that the program overall made money and practically started the entire clean energy revolution that we're living through now. I mean, that, that's the funny thing is like Solyndra has become a cynic dope for a failure on the right, even though the program was a giant success. Whereas- And also did Tesla. There's no Tesla without yeah, the DOE exactly, loan Exactly, exactly. And where's the obsession for Kemper? Why isn't Kemper- an incantation. Why don't they say the word Kemper every five minutes on Fox? Shane, News? we should ask Shane. He was sending the subpoenas over to us. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if, if they could, if they could pump tens of billions of dollars into clean coal, they'd still be doing it. So I don't think, <laughs> I don't think they're ready to give up on on that dream. So clean yet. coal is not a thing. Is that what you're telling me? It's hilarious that Joe Manchin is still on that boat. He will be literally the last one to get off that boat, I think. But David, the broader point too is, I mean, you've, you've said a lot about this. The thing about Solyndra was we were held to a standard that nobody would ever meet, which is that you'd have to go perfect on every single investment. Yeah, it was the, a portfolio, the point, right? The point of the investments was to take risks that the private market wouldn't take. That was the, that was the design of the program. If anything... If you assess it based on its, you know, sort of outlines and how it was supposed to be implemented, it didn't lose enough money. It didn't yeah. take enough risks. It was too conservative precisely because I think the entire administration knew that there were vultures waiting to take any uh, any sign of failure and make it into a thing. And of course, they did and no one could stop them. And it remains a thing to this day. But but yeah, the point was to take risks. The, the fact that one failed, you know, more should have failed. They should have been throwing money out to a lot more places. As we go through this process, we're hopefully you know, reconciliation and the bipartisan deal get passed, which I'm sure we're going to get to, you know, on the show. 
the DOE approach is that there is a spectrum from the early life of a company or technology to the very end, the deployment phase and everything in between. And so there's sort of programs to help support each part of that spectrum. So if you're super early basic science, there's national labs doing that type of research. If you're at the very seed stage, you could go to RPE or something that hasn't really been proven yet. If you've been proven in a lab and just need to pilot a little bit, you know, there's Sunshot and other programs like that. They're doing hydrogen shot now. And then the point of the loan program was to be the deployment arm, you know, to test the real deployment of these technologies. So as we go through this process on these policies, we're going to see that they're trying to support, you know, each part of that spectrum to catalyze these industries. And, and what, just one more quick point before we leave this behind. I know I could talk about this the whole hour, but I think the even larger, larger story, like the sort of larger, one level larger story is the success of the program Cylindra was part of. But the even broader story is the success of solar PV generally, and specifically the fact that we set out to make it cheap and did, which means we know how to do that, right? We're not sitting, waiting to find out what happens with technology. Along with LED lights, along yes. with lithium-ion batteries, all those technologies yes. were we did much that on purpose. more expensive. And yeah, it was very deliberate. I can tell you, though, now that I'm on the industry side of clean energy. Corporate sellout side? Yeah, corporate sellout for clean energy solutions. <laughs> hard, I know, right? Wow. God forbid wow. you try to make it happen. The man. I know. It's good. Brandon pushes me to be my better self. Yeah, I can just say that I have heard in recent days that people on the Hill are still so shocked and worried about the Cylinder scandal that they're hesitant to pass certain types of policies and worried about blowback from Republicans. Oh so I can tell you it lives on today. It's like the Frankenstein of policy. That is a good transition into the issues of the day. As you said, Brandon, we have budget reconciliation talks. We have infrastructure. I think one thing we can put to the side for a moment now is raising the debt limit. We just had the Senate and House come through and extend the borrowing limit by $480 billion. That kicks the can down the road till December. So yay, a little bit of time. <laughs> <laughs> but really, we're back to this stalemate on what to do with the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill. And I know you're following this closely, David. I guess just to set the scene for this discussion, uh, as we speak today on a Tuesday, Pelosi had indicated that Democrats were looking at a double barrel approach that would be both trimming the number of priorities in their social spending package, including the climate measures as well, and cutting back on the length of certain programs that would be funded. So we know that at the end of September, the negotiations fizzled on what to do about reconciliation. They kicked the can down the road to the end of October on that, along with infrastructure. So we've got again, gosh, just a few weeks now, though, to see what's going to happen on these two bills. Understanding is that Biden wants Democrats to get down to a $2 trillion range. We've heard Senator Manchin say he wants something at one5 before we get into other elements, what are top line takeaways on where things stand today? David, I'm curious to hear from you on what your read is on these, uh, you know, democratic roadblocks. Well, when I'm not breathing into a paper bag <laughs> and panicking, which is most of the time, and I take a few breaths and try to stay calm, everybody involved in this process has told me this is how it goes. It's chaotic. It's ugly. Everything will be declared dead several times before we get to the end of this. And ultimately, in the end, Dems are going to hash out a number they can all live with and pass both the bills. So I still think... That's the most optimistic thing I think I've ever heard you say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, the minute it came out of my mouth, I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I said? I mean, believe me, believe me, it absolutely could fail. There's a million different things that could still go wrong and blow the thing up. But I just think even Cinema and Mansion, everybody involved, nobody 
no Democrat thinks it's an acceptable outcome for the whole thing to flame out and for Dems to head into midterms with nothing to show for it. It would be a disaster for all of them across the party, swing states, purple, red, blue, whatever. It would be a disaster. So ultimately, that incentive is hanging out there, pulling people forward through the through the muck. Do we think this gets done by this new imposed deadline of October 31st, I think, is when Pelosi said she'd put up a vote on the infrastructure bill. If we know that Democrats have tied infrastructure and reconciliation together. Shane, what's your read on the timing these days? I think, you know, that date wasn't set randomly, obviously, when it was you know aligned with the extension for surface transportation infrastructure legislation. There was a one month extension there, but also for COP, right? And so I think to send the president to COP empty-handed would be an unwise move. It's not going to be the first time, obviously, the U.S. has, has done that. But I think there's a lot of very real consequences to not getting it done this month. At the same time, I've talked to several people, House, Senate, over the last couple of days, and I don't think they're close. Like They might be close on a number. They might be zeroing in on a number, but there's some of these programs actually require a lot of massaging. And then they send the text back to you know the Joint Committee on Taxation or the Congressional Budget Office to make sure that the numbers do what they're supposed to do. And so there, there is real actual technical work that needs to be done aside and apart from agreeing, you know, theoretically on what should be done. I personally am planning my schedule around working on this up and until uh, New Year's Eve when we all celebrate the end of 2021. But um, I hope I'm wrong. How about that? Fair enough. So I mentioned just a moment ago that Pelosi's talking about trimming the number of policies or cutting back on the length of these programs. Some of the things that could be on the chopping block could be the $150 billion proposal to have the clean energy electricity program that would reward electric utilities that switch from burning fossil fuels to clean energy and penalize them if they don't. There's about $300 billion in tax incentives for wind, solar, and electric vehicles and some other clean energy resources. There's a number of programs designed to help poor people adapt to climate change. There's also $30 billion for a green bank, $30 billion for a civilian climate corps, $10 billion for rural electric cooperatives, $13 billion for new electric vehicle charging stations, and I could go on. I want to put to you guys and maybe Brandon and then David, you know, what would be policies among those that you would either accept being cut or you would accept them being shorter term or smaller in scope if we have to deal with one of those solutions? And I guess you can challenge the premise. But assuming we got to see Democrats do one thing, where would you go, Brandon? Well, first, I want to set the stage a little bit because we came in hot uh, with that Solyndra discussion. <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we got to welcome David back. I think, you know, he was our most downloaded guest we ever had. Is that right, Julia? I think, yeah, that's true. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So welcome back. <laughs> I'm coming to you from Dallas, Texas today. I'm here with my uh, NGP Energy Technology Partners uh, colleagues, which is an energy transition investment fund that I work with. One of the uh, investments we made is Form Energy, which David, you talked about in your battery uh, series, which was really helpful. Uh, Form is a long duration storage, multi-day storage technology that we're really excited about. And just prior to doing the show today, we had to do happy hour with my colleagues. Uh, so one thing is David's fan club is massive. They were so uh, excited and I've they've been texting me questions and giving me questions for the show. So Tanner and Greg Lyons and the crew that was out today, they've, they've got questions for you, David. Big fans. 
Second, I was a little worried about doing this show because our original political climate shows, we had a bunch of beers. You know, I was at a happy hour, so I was a little bit nervous about this, but the cylindric discussion sobered me up very fast. So now <laughs> I'm ready to have the conversation about what's going to stay in and out, but I want David to go first. <laughs> well, I'm not about to predict because who knows? <laughs> uh, but I think that Democrats understand that the two core policies are the the clean energy payment program and the clean energy tax credits. Those are sort of the push and pull at the core of decarbonizing the energy sector in the next 10 years, which as I've <clears throat> written and said many, many, many times now, is the most important work of climate change is the number one job is rapid decarbonization of the of the electricity sector in the coming decade. And it's that is precisely I mean, that's in policy terms, that would be the last hill I would die on. Like I would, I would let those other things go before those two. I mean, I, I, I love all of it. I would love to keep all of it in. It should be twice as big as it is. But if I'm losing things, those would be the last two things I lose. But, you know, the flip side of that is those two things, rapid decarbonization of the electricity sector in the coming decade tends to be precisely what the kind of status quo fossil fuel lovers oppose like they love they love to plant trees they love to research carbon capture and sequestration which might phase in in a big way in like 20 30 or 40 you know they love research they love talking about innovation but what they don't want to do is policies that will materially displace fossil fuels from the electricity sector rapidly that's what they don't want to do because, you know, the coal and gas companies don't want them to do that. So the two most important policies in there now, climate wise, I think, are also going to be two of the top targets. So that's what I'm keeping my eyes on. And the, the only other thing I'd say, we need the clean energy payment program to stay intact. We need the clean energy tax credits to stay intact. And we need the clean energy tax credits to be switched over to direct pay, which means you can just get the money up front and you don't have to do it via taxes, which will open up those energy tax credits to a much wider variety of people, get them out the door much faster, et cetera, et cetera. So those would be my red lines. But Manchin has made no bones about the fact that he is going after the clean energy payment program on grounds, substantive grounds that are so dumb. It's hard not to view them as gaslighting. It's clear he just doesn't want fossil fuels out of the electricity sector, but that's what he's going after. So, I'm, I mean, it depends on whoever the mansion whisperers are in the Senate can get him to come around on it. And I have no idea how that how that process works. What do you think influences him, David? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Who? I mean, <laughs> Who knows? He's the things he says substantively are easily debunkable and have been debunked, like the sort of stuff about debt and the idea that the electricity sector is doing this anyway. So we don't need to send any money to the electricity sector to do it is just dumb. Like it's not doing it fast enough. That's the whole point. So it's hard to know with these questions. It's always is he just ill informed? Or is he hiding malign motives like the fact that he literally owns and makes money off of coal plants? <laughs> or has he convinced himself that natural gas and coal are the only future for West Virginia and we can't phase them out? And that's why he's doing this. So I really don't know. He's not as opaque to me as cinema, who is completely opaque yeah. to me. But Manchin, at least there are like live theories about Manchin, but I don't know which one of them is the correct one. 
Yeah, you mentioned Senator Cinema. I feel like you can kind of get a sense of Senator Manchin. He has at least a longer record to point to in statements he's made. And he did say from the beginning he didn't want a $3.5 trillion package, and I guess he was being serious. But Senator Cinema seems more confusing to me. She's actually, you know, she has a Green Party background. She was an environmentalist. She had like top ratings from the League of Conservation Voters. And she, there, well, there was at least reporting that she wants to cut around $100 billion in climate measures from the reconciliation bill. However, her staffer did, you know, roundly deny that. Hilariously, <laughs> by the way, since all anybody in the world wants to know is, what do you people want? Right. What does she want out of What is the principle? If that's not it, what is it? And so she does have press people. They do go out in public and say things. They knock down other people's theories. And everybody's just like, please just tell us. I mean, this this was to get back to the timing issue, whether we can get this done by the end of October. It would go a lot faster if the people who were holding it up would say what they want. Then you could have negotiations. But they very weirdly won't, especially cinema refuses. So so bargain with what negotiate with what do what like it's not clear like they can't get started at the nuts and bolts negotiations if there's no one to negotiate with so brandon say you have the pen here what are the policies hmm. you want to keep or would you live with cutting or would you change the time period that's a discussion now do you move like tax credits from 10 years down to five years or something similar across various other policies what could you live with to get closer to two trillion rather than 3.5 yeah, I think speed matters. Uh, we've got to move the needle now and, and get maximum political benefit for next year's elections. I, I very much subscribe to David's theory, and I hope we get into it later in the show about the sort of democracy crisis that we're in and the danger that we're in in 2024 of like a constitutional crisis. And so we have to win. <laughs> we have to win in the midterms and the, you know, historical headwinds are very much against the Democrats. So, you know, I'm for the policies where we can get that money out and get people to feel it, be able to take credit, you know, for that impact and win next year, because we're going to have a real problem in climate if we don't win the midterms in 2024, like real dangerous. So two things I want to throw out are, one, um, David is the sort of original proponent of electrify everything. I, I, I mean, I know SEP is obviously the, the biggest sort of impact on the power grid, but I, I thought you'd lean uh, harder into you know, the Saul Griffith program and uh, some of the you know direct-to-consumer rebates for electrified appliances, some of the commercial building electrification. I was excited to hear it, and I didn't hear it. Well, I mean, I'm all for that stuff, and, and, and all that stuff is a rounding error. I mean, the stupid tax credits that Josh Gottheimer is is fighting against, the tax hikes that Josh Gottheimer is currently fighting against at the state level, those alone, which go to the top 1% of income earners, are $150 billion. So there's your whole clean energy payment program right there. And like the amount of money that's going to, to rebates for customers for these things is just like such small small bones relative to what's needed, relative to what's possible. But yeah, I mean, obviously that's the point of the clean energy payment program is electrification. And the point of the clean energy tax credits is electrification. And obviously much more, I would have liked to see much more on buildings and appliances and integration of buildings and all those kind of things. But some of those things I think are sufficiently untriggering that they might be able to be done quietly in subsequent bills. That might be the most optimistic thing I've ever said, actually. <laughs> but like some of those things are not, you know, they don't have a ton of opposition yet, unlike the clean energy payment program. So that's just where I focus my defensive fire. 
you said SEP there, Shane, you meant the clean energy payment program. He prioritized that over electrification of appliances specifically. Yeah. And they are two sides of the same coin, right? Because electrifying appliances doesn't really matter if you're using dirty fuels to do it. Right. The other thing I wanted to flag too, um, that neither of you mentioned, so I wanted to, is EV charging infrastructure. We take it for granted in California because I drive an EV and it never would occur that I could... I think I've had such a positive impact on you, Shane. <laughs> I, I hate that you got that satisfaction. You definitely did I, not drive one when we met you. No, but, but he I... He made fun of me. I did. I did, I did make fun of Brandon. Um, but, but now I he's an EV this. driver. Now he works at Thunderstone. I live for it. But, yes. I, but here's the thing, though. It is, it is a better vehicle. Aside and apart from the fact that you know it's better for the, the world, it's actually a better vehicle. But one thing I forget about when I preach to my friends who don't live in California is there is no scenario where I could, you know, not have power. Like there is no scenario where I'd be running low, my battery would be running low, and I wouldn't have somewhere that I could find a fast charger or have some sort of like relatively convenient, you know, positive charging experience and then get back on my way. But when I, you know, I'm trying to be an evangelist about this. And when I talk to people in other states, I sometimes do forget that just isn't true everywhere. So I get excited about the dollars being invested in EV corridors or sent to communities for EV charging deployment because, you could not commit, you couldn't pay me to go back, but not everyone even has the ability to have that experience. So I'm excited to see some of that. Isn't some of that money in the in the BIF in the bipartisan infrastructure framework? Isn't there money for EV charging stations in the bipartisan bill? Yep, there's um there's five billion that's you know for EV charging specifically, and then another five billion I think for EV charging or hydrogen or, or some other things. So definitely some there, but I, I like it both. You know, I like it all. I like it in the in the reconciliation bill. I like it in the BIF because. It's important. I mean, that is a huge way to reduce emissions across our country if, if you could actually get people to switch. And I think people will switch when they understand the experience is better, as long as they have security that you know they're able to repower or refuel, however you want to phrase it, you know, as, as easily as we can out here. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than traditional electricity providers in the area. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. This is about more than just putting more renewable energy on the grid. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and gives us cleaner air to breathe. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. David, as I'm breathing into the paper bag like you, I mean, I am. We've lost a lot of time on this debate. You know, by the time they get moving here, I mean, the last several, we've lost critical time. It's, it is frustrating. I feel like I'm obliged to point out that uh, Biden, you know, his approval ratings were great. Momentum was great when Democrats came out of the gate acting decisively, doing mm -hmm. big things, passing big bills. And the minute it pivoted to this reminiscent of Obama era, endless negotiation and squabbling and fighting and procedural hoo-ha that the public hates, the minute they got into that, that's when his uh, uh, approval rating starts going down. You know, I've written this on the blog several times or in the newsletter. I think people underestimate, I think even pessimists underestimate <laughs> 
just how much this is our last big chance on climate change for probably a decade. I mean, uh, unless something extremely out of the ordinary or some weird exogenous force comes along, all predictions based on current trends are Democrats will not have unified control over the federal government again for a long time. So this really is it. And I tried to preach that at the very beginning, and that's how they should have gone into it. But that's what Manchin doesn't want, is that kind of pressure. That's why he is deliberately trying to slow things down. That is his point. He knows every day that goes on, there's more squabbling, the public turns against it more, the people who want it to pass get more and more desperate, and he's in a better and better negotiating position. Time is absolutely the enemy of all of us on this Mm -hmm. stuff. So why are Democrats so at odds? Is it really just down to Manchin and cinema, or is there something bigger at play here? They really don't know how much to spend at one time is a good amount to spend at one time. Is there politics at play? Everyone's just trying to get their little wins in. Like, I just don't really get it to like David's point. Time is of the essence, and this is the opportunity Democrats have right now. So they got to understand that. I don't really get why it's so hard to come to agreement. They do. I mean, this is the thing. Like people talk about Democrats doing this or Democrats doing that. You know, it makes them all responsible for the delay, but they do. The vast, vast majority of them are ready to sign the damn thing at 3.5 billion or 3.5 trillion and and get it done. I mean, Biden said publicly the other day, which was I, I think he would not say something like this publicly without having thought about and talked about saying it publicly. They asked him, do you have the votes in the Senate? He's like, I've got them all but two. He said publicly, these are the two that are holding me back. So that's like, you know, there's been this sort of theory that Manchin is just kind of like a front man for a secret group of sort of more conservative senators who don't want to be out publicly fighting this stuff, who kind of want him to fight the battles. But the longer this goes on, the more it looks like the two of them really just swinging out there in the wind utterly by themselves. And that's like, it's just the nature of the structure of our government and all the many ridiculous features of it that those two are perfectly capable of thwarting the desires of all the rest of the Democrats. And then when this, you know, if it all flames out and the stupid era is over, we're looking back, people are going to say, oh, Democrats blew it when they had the power. And it really is just two people. And it's really it's mystifying, I think, to an outsider or to someone who doesn't follow politics closely. How could that be? How could so much, so high stakes come down to two people who don't even make sense and no one understands? But like, it really is, I think, what it appears to be, which is those two. I mean, if if those two flip, they could have the thing done, I think, really quickly. So, David, let me ask you this, because I'm dying to hear your opinion. I've I've opined uh, quite a bit on this podcast and, and everywhere else. But I initially, you know, thought that Winning begets winning. I think that's always true. I think it's true in sports. I think it's true in policy. I think it's true everywhere. I believed that the best way to achieve as much as possible, as quickly as possible, would have been to have the House take up the vote on the bipartisan bill the moment it got there, you know, months ago, put that out of the way, and then, you know, take away the excuse of people saying, you schedule this and I schedule that, or you schedule this and I schedule that. Because I believe, and I don't know this for a fact, and no one's told me this directly, but I think part of the reason um, Senator Sinema is being a little bit elusive is I think she's frustrated. I think she told the president point blank, you know, schedule this vote and then we'll move on to the next one. Do you have any opinions there? And, and, and I'm curious if, if you sort of agree with my take, clear the deck and focus all your efforts on reconciliation, or if you think, you know, trying to pair them together was the right way to go. I will preface by saying I have no confidence in my answer. Uh, <laughs> let's put it that way. But uh, yes, I do have opinions that I have very little confidence in. 
I've heard that perspective articulated before, and I get it. I disagree for this reason. I just think if cinema wants the bipartisan bill, the quote unquote moderates in the House want the bipartisan bill, the people who are trying to maneuver and position themselves as I'm not a Republican, but I'm one of the sensible Democrats slowing the other Democrats down from doing their silly progressive things, that whole game. They need to show that bipartisanship can do something, can produce something, that it is alive, that there's a reason there for it. So they want that. And that's, in concrete terms, just about all they want. (laughs) I think, uh, you know, Cinema and Manchin and the four or five, whoever they are in the House, I think, generally speaking, if you pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill, they would all be perfectly happy to shoot down the reconciliation bill. They would all be perfectly happy to vote against it. It would be no skin off their backs. They would be able to say, look, we did a sensible bipartisan thing, but I'm not going to go along with this crazy lefty thing. That's perfect for them. It's like it's like a, an attack ad written for them on their behalf. So to my mind, the only leverage that progressives have, and here when I say progressives, I mean the vast majority of the House the vast majority of the Senate and the president and according to polls, the public, the only way for those people, the only leverage they have over these quote unquote moderates is the bipartisan infrastructure bill. It's holding that hostage. That's literally it's and now it might not be enough. It might not work. It might be that those same moderates are happy to see both bills die. That may be so. I don't know. But at least By pinning the bills together, you force them to come to the table on reconciliation and work out a compromise. That is Pramila Jayapal's theory of the case, and I think it's basically correct. I think if they had passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill at this point, you know, Manchin would have no incentive at all to go along with anything that bothered him in the least, right? He would have no incentive to come along. So the reconciliation bill would end up being the absolute lowest common denominator. It would end up being nothing, especially on climate, a nothing burger. And like I said, like the stakes are really high. This is a last chance. This is like the last chance at the OK Corral time here. So maybe some high stakes games are what it's going to take. It's like a big game of chicken. But I think that progressives have done the right thing. One, by being good soldiers throughout this whole thing, which is not, you know, what DC reporters want to write, but the progressives have been the good Democrats allied with the president, right? So they were right to do that. And now I think they're right to be acting as a unified block for the first time in a long time, first time in my memory, a unified progressive block saying, no, we have red lines. I think they have to do that. I don't I don't have a high confidence that it will work, but I think if they just pass the BIF right now, we just see Manchin, you know, hacking the bill down to under a trillion. Yeah. And just for reference, I just looked up as we were speaking some of the polling. There was a Quinnipiac poll from over the summer in in August that found 62 percent support for a three point five trillion dollar spending bill. A Monmouth University poll around the same time frame also found 63 percent support in favor. So I actually wasn't sure where the public had landed on that. And maybe there's more recent polling, but it's a good reminder of yeah, there is actually a mandate here from the voters and we're just <laughs> Yes, and it's crazy also the other side of the crazy the crazy pants nature of all this is that there's all this talk about debt, you know, Manchin says we don't want to add to the debt, but we're not adding to the debt. The dang thing is paid for. It's all paid for and the taxes with which it is being paid for are some of the most 
popular policies like taxing rich people and corporations polls through the roof across parties, across regions. So lots of these quote unquote moderates are going specifically after the most popular policies their party has on offer for no substantive justification. They're just outright protecting rich people. It could not be more naked. So David, you wrote back in March that Democrats must pass substantial democracy reform before the 2022 elections. If Democrats don't get this done, the U.S. is in for a long period of political darkness. Democracy in America could very well perish. Climate change will become unsolvable. Every goal progressives seek, taxing the rich, funding infrastructure, fixing immigration, boosting unions, you name it, will move out of reach. That was, you know, a few months ago. I'm assuming things are similar in your view today. But walk us through that argument. What's really at stake here? Um, there's several things going on. One is there are a series of structural features of the United States system of government that advantage Republicans currently. Um, part of that is the overrepresentation of rural people in the Senate, which has gotten, you know, I think in terms of population ratio was like three to one or four to one, something like that, when the founders <laughs> were debating the Constitution. And now it's like 70 to one, something like that. So there's that. There's gerrymandering. There's just the general, um, you know, it's just generally the case with demographics that Democratic voters, which tend to be educated urbanites, cluster in cities. And Republicans tend to draw more from rural and exurban voters, which are distributed geographically. And our system of government just favors geography over numbers. People. Over people. And every one of those features that advantage the right now, the right is aware of and working its tail off to make bigger, to make the division bigger. They're passing all these voter restriction laws directly targeted at Democratic constituencies. There's the gerrymandering and just the, I mean, the one thing, you know, there's this big debate going on now about democratic strategy, but kind of the one thing that almost everybody involved in that debate agrees with is that the lean against Democrats in the Senate is getting worse and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So the whole point being, we have a party now, uh, the Republican Party, that has more or less openly said that it views its opponents as illegitimate, that it views their votes as illegitimate, that it views any laws that stand in the way of its immediate interests as illegitimate, and that it's willing to break laws. And I mean, they're now openly admiring Orban in Hungary who is sort of like the textbook case of a, uh, you know, quote unquote, democratically elected politician who then took his democracy into autocracy where it remains. And that is what Trump wants to do. And this is not a conspiracy theory. He says it all the damn time. Like the whole party backs him saying it like they're not um, shy about their intentions. So my whole point was, Right now, Democrats have unified control of government probably for the last time in a decade, maybe forever. Who knows? Like, it looks really bad. And that will be their last chance to correct some of these structural imbalances that are crippling them in the long term. And that means, you know, everything from Supreme Court reform to gerrymandering reform to making D.C. a state possibly Puerto Rico, a state, all these procedural reforms. My basic point was just, this is going to be the last chance to pass those because you better believe that the party that is advantaged by all those structural imbalances is never going to cooperate getting rid of them. So once you lose control of one, you know, one branch of government, any branch of government, 
that's it. It's off the table. And it's going to be a long time before you have unified control back. So, you know, I realize that that's kind of an apocalyptic way to look at it, but I think it's absolutely accurate. I think if Democrats don't pass any structural reforms, any voting reform, any of these reforms that are on the table right now and just wander into 2022, they're going to lose the House in 2022. They're probably going to lose the Senate in 2024. Very well may lose the presidency. And I am not exaggerating when I say that I don't think American democracy as we know it would survive another four years of unified Republican control. You know, their intentions are clear and on the record now. So we stop them while we can or they don't get stopped. And I, th- I think that's just as true now as it was back in March. Shane, wondering what you think about that. And are there 10 Republicans that could come together to say, look, let's put the policy disagreements aside, but we see the danger of Trump and the autocratic threat you know, that he represents, and we're going to band together on just a pro-democracy agenda. Is there any scenario, and who do those 10 potential Republicans like Mitt Romney and such, the 10 who like voted for impeachment, listen to? So, I mean, it depends on what a pro-democracy agenda is, I think, right? There's certainly a collection of people from the Republican side or really anywhere that could that could agree to, to certain things. I mean, I think zooming out a little bit, Brandon, one conversation we've had in the past, which is almost you know the exact opposite of, of what David was, was just articulating is, you've told me several times you think Republicans would never be in power again because of demographic shifts that we're seeing in Texas and, and Georgia and other places. So I know, David, that's if not it's the point you're hitting on. If it's a fair fight. <laughs> well, so, yeah. I subscribe to David's theory. It's not a fair fight and getting worse. So I'd love to, I, for example, would Republicans, any that I can think of, agree to, you know, sort of change the way we elect senators? The answer is definitively no. I mean, do I think there's 10 uh, Republican senators who would want to give statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico? And I realize that's more than just a vote, you know, of, of 60 senators as a whole constitutional process there. Again, the answer is no. I do think that a lot of people you know, that I talk to uh, would very much like to see a system that provides for better general election candidates, whereby America wouldn't be swinging you know, from one direction to the other. The California system, and I almost say this about nothing, but is about the best system because you run in an open primary. And so you are not incentivized, unless you're in a very conservative, very liberal district, you're not incentivized to run as hard as you can you know, towards your base with red meat. Um, so I, I think there's a number of Republicans, even if they wouldn't say it publicly, you know, for all the reasons uh, that would very much support redistricting reform, where, you know, you actually had districts that represented some common interest amongst people who live near each other, rather than, you know, were drawn in some unrecognizable shapes and forms to control, you know, the, the R plus 10 or, or D plus 10 or whatever it is. Um, I think reforming the primary system would appeal to a lot of, of moderate or centrist Republicans or whatever you want to call them, because you cannot win. You cannot win a Republican primary right now if you have any sort of rational views on most things. And that's unfortunate <laughs> because I think you could do okay in a general election in several places. There are a lot of parts of the country that aren't you know, D plus 10 or R plus 10. There are a lot of communities where people are just living their lives and getting by and they care about each other and they care about their schools and they want to see people do well. So on those two pieces, absolutely. I mean, I know there's there's constitutional issues that I'm not addressing as far as you know states having control of their own elections and all those sorts of things. And I, I do think that any package that could sort of look, feel, taste bipartisan in, in any sort of way that would be you know considering saving democracy 
would have to include certain things also that, you know, a lot of Democrats hate, like to this moment, and I'm going to get probably crushed by all three of you right now. I can't understand why it's like really like, even in my ripe old age of 38, when I buy alcohol, I still have to like present an ID. And people seem so, so upset about the concept of one, you know, having to prove their identity to vote. So I think you'd have to look at all of that. Like, how do we make redistricting reasonable? Is there a way to set up a primary system so that candidates that people actually like could run against each other? Is there a way to avoid voter fraud without creating voter suppression? I don't know what the answers to those are because I realize it's a sensitive wiggle. I certainly think there's a lot of Republicans elected. Maybe I don't know if there are 10, frankly. But um, yeah, I mean, it's the elected question that's, I mean, you can get lots of people uh, to support that from outside. But, you know, one thing you could do is just look at like, Democratic states that have set up a new redistricting process versus Republican-controlled states. Democrats tend to set up these uh, committees, these bipartisan committees, these third-party committees, so they can do it fairly via objective metrics. And Republicans just tend to go whole hog on hyper, hyper partisan redistricting. So, like, you can tell what the parties want insofar as there's any will to make this fair. It's on the Democratic side. I haven't seen any. I mean, I haven't seen any Republican in office in power put any political oomph behind anything like a reform of any kind. And like for, you know, Mitt Romney, he voted to filibuster raising the debt ceiling like the guys. There are no moderates left in that in that caucus certainly not 10 i mean this is this was the thing with mansion right is you know it was very clear that you either get rid of the filibuster or you can't reform voting and mansion didn't want to be the guy that stood you know that single-handedly ruined voting reform but he also didn't want to get rid of the filibuster so now he's wasted more time putting together a version of voting reform bill that he thinks he can get 10 republican votes for and it's just ludicrous. Now we all have to sit back and wait and watch for weeks as Manchin tries futilely to do this. And we all find inevitably that he can't. And we're just going to be right back to the decision set that they faced the second they were all elected, which is you can do what you will do by yourself. That is all you will do. So do it or don't do it, but don't pretend otherwise. Yeah, I think I think the irony and David, I don't even think we're we're in conflict here. I think maybe saying what I said earlier in, in fewer words is that in order to get enough elected Republicans in office to want to do some of these things, states are going to have to change the primary system to allow those individuals to get elected because there is just no upside in saying something rational in a primary right now. Um, I, I can't speak to the Democratic side. I know that's true on, on the Republican side at this moment. Well, there's a big debate about that happening, this David Shore piece. David Roberts, you've been talking about the David Shore debate. What do you think? The David Shore debate. What is it and what does David Roberts think? Well, we'll have to leave you on that cliffhanger to round out the first part of this episode. There was just too much goodness in this conversation. We kept it going. We kept the tape rolling. And so we've decided to split it up into two episodes. So that means you got to come back to the Political Climate Podcast feed to catch the rest of this conversation, which is a good reminder to hit subscribe wherever it is that you like to listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, hit subscribe to Political Climate and do not miss a beat. But I'll leave it here for now. I'm Julia Piper, your host. Thanks so much to Kyle McDonald, our editor, and to Maria Virginia Alano, who is our producer. They make this show possible. Thanks also to Canary Media and our partners at the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. Come back for part two with David Roberts. You won't want to miss it. Until soon.